Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet the panel. First up, it's Ike columnist Ian Dunt. Hello, Ian. Hello. Uh, storm damage to the Millennium Dome was a Swiss army knife metaphor for Twitter wags. We've had 15 years of success as the uh, internationally renowned O2. Was this a rare chance to make jokes about the Millennium? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't come up so much anymore, does it? Or the sort of, you know, the weakness and superficiality of New Labour's political legacy. All of these jokes were up for grabs and were very well made. I don't, I mean, two things struck me from this. The first thing was, and this might be a bit embarrassing, I'm just going to say it, and then I think you, you might laugh at me, but I didn't really realise that that was fabric on the top. I thought that was like a hard top to that building. So I was very surprised to see it sort of drift away. Yeah. The second thing was that it did look a lot like the Millennium Falcon underneath the Millennium Dome, which... It was quite telling, I thought, especially considering that then it's a sky. You take a skywalk over the thing, so it's the, it's the full, it's the full fucking package, basically. I mean, they should have done that for the fucking for the Millennium celebrations instead of you know walking through the human body or whatever toss. Point I like the Millennium Dome. I think it's one of the great kind of silk purse sow's ear situations. But basically, <laughs> everybody was just like, "Ah, what have you done, you idiots?" And then it was just like <laughs> built one of the world's most uh, successful uh, music venues. It's not great for <laughs> but without music, telling though, anyone. Yeah, I've been, yeah, it's fine. I mean, I've been there, it just felt a bit soulless and big and a bit cool. Yeah, but all arenas do. There's no, you can't have a cosy arena. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, I'm going to have to give away to you this on the basis that you've probably been to, what, 10,000, 10, 12,000 gigs in your life? <laughs> exactly, yeah. 12,000 gigs. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> right, that's good. I will give away. We're also joined by Minnie Rahman of the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. Hi, Minnie. Hiya. Last week, Angela Rayner said on Matt Ford's Political Party podcast, other podcasts are available, um, on things like law and order, I'm quite hardline. I'm like, shoot your terrorists and ask questions second. There was quite a backlash. Was It, it obviously wasn't a thought through policy statement. Was it justified? Like, what did you do? You think that she, what she was trying to say was what people assumed she was saying? I, do, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I thought it was completely and utterly tone deaf. I mean, I don't know who the audience was for that. Like you, like you just said, I, it wasn't clear to me whether she'd actually thought about it. But I listened to it a couple of times, and it sounded like something she'd sort of been told to say, or she'd read some polling that she thought people would like it. Maybe it's the the kind of approach where, oh, I'm just being honest and speaking my truth, and and the public will enjoy that. But you know, I thought it was deeply offensive and tone deaf. You know, there's been numerous incidences of people who've died at the hands of police violence. And you can think about this in the context of Islamophobia, generalised racism, Jean-Charles de Menzies, or, or even the fact that it was quite recently the anniversary of Bloody Sunday. Like, all of that just feels completely inappropriate. And I felt like she was trying to out-Tory the Tories and and I thought it was a really silly idea. Well, um, West Streeting was obviously trying to sort of frame it by saying, well, it's plainly obvious police should be permitted to use lethal force against active terrorists doing terrorism, which I think is I mean, fairly uncontroversial if people are literally in the middle of doing that. But do the problems at the Met make this just like a really bad time to be talking about the police using force wisely, like with the assumption that it's like, well, I'm sure they wouldn't use it if they didn't have to? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just a really strange strategy to take. You know, there's an opportunity here to talk about reform more generally. You know, you've got Cressida Dick resigning. You've got the death of Sarah Everard. You've got Black Lives Matter. You know, the public is very attuned and sensitive to policing right now. And Labour could literally go down any route to talk about making policing more effective or consensual or whatever you want to call it. And it just doesn't make sense to me to prioritise this conversation. Um, so it, generally, I think it's 
it's quite confusing. We have two guests on the show this week. Michael Spicer is a writer, actor and comedian who you probably know from his enormously popular The Room Next Door videos, where he pretends to be coaching politicians through train wreck interviews. Uh, This led to a book, a tour, a radio series, a slot on James Gordon's show, a knighthood probably, and other things. (laughs) You may also have seen him on The MASH Report and Diane Morgan's sitcom Mandy. Hello, Michael. Hello. Thank you. Um, it's very, We're watching him on Zoom, which makes it look as if we are in one of his videos. It's very, um, very unnerving. It's super disconcerting, man. I'm not getting used to it um, at all. Amazingly, a video in which you pretended to be David Bowie, but you didn't really pretend to be David Bowie at all. You weren't doing That's the right. voice. Um, has, has actually been fact-checked several times in recent days, people clarifying yeah. that, no, David Bowie did not say that. Is this a, <laughs> is this a common problem in the internet that just like people, that you, you make a joke and then... Uh, you have to have these special news items pointing out that it's a joke. Well, since the uh, the last few years, there's been that kind of clamping down on fact-checking, which is admirable. But when I'm clearly a comedian doing a sketch, it's all right, just leave it. <laughs> um, because, because there needed to be three articles breaking down why this wasn't true. And... At no point did they say, well, the main thing is that this man is not David Bowie. (laughs) He clearly doesn't look like David Bowie. Somebody said, oh, if you look at the mirror behind the wall, that's that's very sort of um, sort of 2020, the art of, you know, the design. And and I thought, yeah, also, I'm not David Bowie. You know, people. It's one of those. It's one of those examples of people really, really needing to step away from the internet and go for a walk. I never thought I'd be like. Maybe there's too much fact checking in this era of disinformation. <laughs> but there's a, there's an example. Well, I found it amazing that they were fact checking that, <laughs> and there were there are numerous uh, accounts, as you well know, on Facebook and Twitter, uh, spreading all sorts of horrible damaging misinformation and that goes unchecked i thought i remembered you recording a while back a sort of finale uh, for the room next door a very kind of meta episode um yeah but, but were there just too many terrible interviews to resist yeah i did want that to be the end yeah <laughs> <laughs> i've uh, you know i've i've had enough you know i've had enough of them doing this to me <laughs> and, um, i i admit that it's given me my career. You know, Boris Johnson gave me my career in a box with a bow on it. I will never forget that. But I, <laughs> so I, I will never forgive him for that. <laughs> I will never forgive him. <laughs> no, it's uh, where, where would I be without his incompetence? But, um, well, I know where I'd be. I'd be copywriting for a shipping company. That's what I'd be doing. <laughs> because that's what I was doing. Bring it Thanks. on. But um, but yeah, I'm I'm so worn down as I'm sure you are, as I'm sure every journalist is, by the uh, the noise, the 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 daily incomp- the jaw dropping ineffectiveness of what's going on. And we have another special guest to discuss the situation in Ukraine: Romeo Kokriatsky, managing editor of New Voice of Ukraine and co-host of the Ukraine Without Hype podcast. Hi, Romeo. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So where are you at the moment and how are you doing in a, in a real sense, not just a sort of small talk sense? Well, in a real sense, I'm in Kiev. And again, in a real sense, I'm very much in Kiev. I'm not really sure how you 
are supposed to feel prior to your city possibly getting bombed. But whatever that feeling is, that's what I'm feeling. And from what you can tell, is the media elsewhere giving, and I mean, not in Russia, um, but elsewhere giving an accurate picture of the situation? Do you see what you and your friends are experiencing sort of reflected in the coverage? I mean, it's definitely improved. Uh, the fact that a great number of outlets were kicked out of Moscow and have been more or less forced to relocate to Kiev has definitely helped the reporting. Usually, you would have just a slew of uh, foreign policy experts sitting in cozy apartments somewhere in Moscow talking about what the Ukrainians think. Well, now you can actually go and ask Ukrainians what they think. So that's definitely helped with the quality of discourse, I would say, in the Western media. Well, on this week's show, we will discuss the crisis in Ukraine after Vladimir Putin sent troops into the contested republics of Donetsk and Luhansk. Plus, closer to home, we'll be discussing the end of pandemic restrictions as Boris Johnson says that he thinks we should live with COVID. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, we talk about Big Jet TV and the greatest hits of office time wasting. So, uh, it's a medley. <laughs> Before we start, don't forget about our upcoming live shows. On Wednesday 9th of March, we're on at the Leicester Square Theatre in London with me and Ian plus Roz Taylor and the live debut of Mini Ramen, who is preparing, doing voice warm-ups as we speak. <laughs> It will be a great evening of lime doom scrolling, and we may even have the Grey Report to chew on by then. Tickets on sale now at theleicestersquaretheatre.com. And on Sunday, 3rd of April, we'll be chloroforming Ian and taking him to not London for Oh God What Now, live at Leeds, a special matinee show at the famous Leeds City Varieties. Is that okay? Do you get to say that? Just, just <laughs> gags about chloroforming me? Is that that's the thing yes, you do now? Yes, it's oh, only about okay. you. Otherwise, they're bad. Um, <laughs> A, a confused and frightened Ian will be joined by me, Alex Andreu, and Naomi Smith, who will be flaunting her West Yorkshire connections. Go to Leeds Heritage Theatres for tickets. And Patreon people, remember your ticket discount for both shows still works. We will see you there. First this week. In a speech on Monday, Vladimir Putin ordered what he euphemistically calls peacekeepers to enter two rebel-held regions in Ukraine, a country that he doesn't believe really exists. He has secured permission from Parliament to deploy armed forces outside Russia, which I'm sure was very difficult in that thriving democracy. Saji Javid said on Tuesday morning that the invasion of Ukraine has begun, describing this as a very dark day. So we're going to start by talking to Romeo about the view from Ukraine itself. Romeo, so so far he's moved into the parts of these republics that are currently um, held by separatists. Sure, but I want to clarify a couple of things before we go any further. Yeah. I hate to say it, but you've stumbled onto um, one of the big shibboleths when it comes to Ukraine reporting. Okay. Um, and that is A, referring to the forces uh, in the Donbass and the occupied Donbass as separatists, referring to them re as rebels, and referring to them as republics. The fact is that they are simply puppet authorities set up by the Russian government, commanded by the Russian government, staffed by Russian citizens. There is nothing separatist or rebel about them. They are 100% Russian-controlled, Russian-owned, and Russian-run. None of the independence of, of these uh, territories have ever been shown to have a basis. They have instead, well, what have we found? Well, that one republic had a leader that was an, a literal FSB agent. 
Another republic had a leader that's a, a army officer. There are regular Russian army troops, or there were in hell there are as well, uh, but prior to them just declaring that they were there, there were regular re- Russian army troops there. So it's one of the, the big issues uh, when reporting on Ukraine that a lot of uh, journalists not from the area have made is they will adopt these Russian narratives. And, and make no mistake, these are purely Russian narratives. They were the ones that sold the idea of a separatist movement of rebels, rebel head areas. They're the ones that first started using this language, and the rest of the world adopted that. This has immensely complicated the conversation, uh, having a factual conversation on this matter in the West, in the English-speaking world as a whole, because whenever people use this language, and not even out of any malicious intent, but simply to bring it up, Ukrainians... Well, we immediately get prickly because we know all of those terms are lies or euphemisms that the aggressor state uses in order to mask their true action. Well, I very much stand corrected on that language. Can you briefly explain what has been happening in those regions since 2014? Why why that particular part of Ukraine and the Donbass? Sure. Um, After the Euromaidan revolution, where Ukraine made this kind of conscious choice to reject this concept that the Russians love throwing around, the the Russian world. The idea that Ukraine, Belarus, uh, the Central Asian states, they all belong in the orbit of great mother Russia. Ukrainians rejected that framing. When the Euromadan revolution occurred, it was directly in response to uh, now fugitive President uh, Viktor Yanukovych rejecting the the signing of uh, a previously planned EU uh, association agreement. And of course, then the dictatorship laws and and everything else. But the rejection of this, uh, the rejection of Yanukovych, who was a very pro-Russian politician, he was the head of the pro-Russian party, which at the time was called Party of Regions, is now called the Opposition Bloc, was a direct insult to uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin. And we saw that reflected in his recent address. He, he recently gave a, a video address where he recognized, again, with air quotes, these puppet authorities. And he just said utterly deranged and ahistorical things, things like Lenin invented Ukraine and the Soviet Union damaged Russia by giving away imperial Russian territories. I mean, it, it was from... The leader of a nuclear armed power, it was uh, quite terrifying and quite insane. And when Ukraine rejected this concept of the Russian world, Putin person- took it absolutely personally. And he began to enact several measures to try and bring Ukraine back into Russia's orbit, while at the same time giving his own, at the time, flagging approval ratings a boost. Uh, by annexing Crimea, which the majority of the Russian population always considered to be some huge historical crime that it was given to Ukraine in the first place. To put his leverage on Ukraine, he decided to foment this, what what the Russians called a uh, separatist insurgency, a separatist movement uh, in the Donetsk and Luhansk uh, provinces, which border Russia. And and these provinces are very heavily Russian-speaking. They've always been very heavily pro-Russian. They were the base of support for Yanukovych. And so he thought he would have kind of an easy time of it. As it turned out, 
he didn't. And so that conflict has been going basically on and on for the past eight years. It absolutely cooled down in recent years to the point where on some days no one would die. And that might sound a little macabre, but when you're talking about a war, day when no one dies is uh, quite noticeable. But for whatever reason, he decided that sitting and trying to influence Ukraine via this conflict, trying to force Ukraine to adhere to what's called the Minsk Agreement peace process was not working, that Ukraine was too instrangent, too insubordinate to ever bow to that kind of pressure. And so he put about 75% of his army on our borders and then waited to see what we would do. And we still rejected him. And now we see the consequences of that. So when you hear people talking about diplomacy and reviving that, you know, that that Minsk process and, you know, concessions and, and, and so on, like, how does that seem from a Ukrainian point of view? What would be acceptable to Ukraine? What would be practical? Is there room to do much or are all the demands that are being made ones that are unacceptable? No, the demands that Russia has pushed forward are entirely unacceptable. The security guarantees, as Russia called them, wanted things like a rollback of NATO infrastructure to 1997, which would leave most of like NATO's new members in Eastern Europe undefended. They wanted a ban on Ukraine ever joining NATO. They wanted Ukraine to immediately comply with their interpretation of the mixed peace process. And I want to just add, the reason that Minsk had not worked for these past eight years and has now been abandoned by the Russian side with this invasion is simply because the Russians wanted Ukraine to somehow organize elections in a territory it did not control. And it wanted those elections to be organized immediately as well as a full amnesty for all the people who have been killing Ukrainian soldiers this whole time. That was never going to fly. I mean, you can't exactly have a free and fair election in a territory occupied by foreign troops. So why is Putin acting now? And you say that this kind of this has been going on for for eight years. There has been a war for eight years in that region. Uh, So what is it? Is it domestic politics? Is it, you know, something to do with his sort of legacy? Is it is it age? Like, I, you know, it's something has happened to him. Like, why? Why now? Well, I'm going to pretend to be a Putin psychologist now. And just to warn everyone, I don't have a degree in this. <laughs> but I can speculate with the best of them. Putin, as he pointed out, is, is getting on in age. He's 69. And at that age, I've noticed, uh, especially older men of a particular generation used to a particular lifestyle, tend to start thinking about their mortality and the legacies they'll leave behind. On top of that, after... Uh, Belarusian dictator Alexander Lukashenko was revealed to have just really incompetently fabricated his election. Lukashenko, who had played this kind of balancing role between Russian interests and Western interests to keep Belarus independent, could no longer do that. He had to throw his ball completely 100% behind Putin. And Putin has used this. He's put in quite a few troops in Belarus, and they're now sitting in the Belarusian-Ukrainian border. So I think it's a combination of Putin thinking about his legacy, 
with the opportunity provided by Lukashenko's kind of compliance, as well as likely an end to his patience, I would say, with Ukraine. Because again, as his speech made very clear, he thinks of Ukrainians as subjects, not as independent actors with our own culture and history, but simply as disobedient and recalcitrant Russian subjects. Is he sane, do you think? There's, for so long, we've had this thing of he's this sort of 4D chess grandmaster and there's all this disinformation and what's his secret thing. But actually, when you saw that speech, he seemed kind of very emotional. He didn't quite seem in control. Even the sort of bizarre theatrical parade of, of sort of Q&As that was going on beforehand didn't actually seem like it had been arranged very well. Is, is there some element to which we sort of overestimated his sanity and his degree of control over events? I think we have forgotten the simple fact that people change. And Putin has been in power for quite a while now. He may have at one point been some giant genius strategic master. I mean, he must have had some level of competence to be able to subjugate all of the various oligarchs and mafia lords and so on in Russia to gain and build his power base. But he's been in power basically unopposed with no real opposition for for quite a while. And that makes people complacent. And also it makes people less sharp. He has not had to practice being this genius. He just had to keep the oil money flowing. Ian, let's talk briefly about the Westminster of it all. Uh, Romeo alluded to some of the the components there. You wrote a scathing piece in the eye, all your pieces in the eye are scathing really, um, about the sanctions announced so far. Why and where do they fall short? Because this was meant to be the kind of the mother of all sanctions packages. Yeah, and it isn't. So it's about five banks. It's three uh, individuals. Those three individuals have really been on the American sanctions list uh, for years now. Um, It's an absolute drop in the ocean. And it's frankly inexplicable given the sort of harshness of the rhetoric uh, that we've seen over recent weeks from Liz Truss, from Boris Johnson, that led us to believe that this would be something wholly new. There was also no action... You know, Britain is in a sort of privileged position by virtue of its own previous inadequacies in this regard. And there is actually stuff we can do that mm. hurts Putin. I'd probably argue, apart from the US, say more than anyone, really. And after that, Germany. Germany has fulfilled its obligations and we have not. We're just not willing to do it. So, I mean, you, you look around you. You know, there's this sort of argument of, oh, we've got to keep something, you know, in the back. Right, right. And the Liz Truss was doing this this morning. We've yeah. got to keep something in reserve so that we can, you know, incentive, stop him from, you know, going towards Kiev or whatever. And this is something that military strategists talk about, the, the sort of Russian experts I've spoken to this week. They do talk about that. Hmm. But you could go a lot further while still keeping something in the cupboard, right? It's I mean, not this. The choices aren't this or absolutely everything. Yes. <laughs> right. Well, it, this isn't even a start of what we could do. I mean, you just look at the London Stock Exchange. Why does Gazprom have a secondary listing on the London Stock Exchange? Why does Rosneft have a secondary listing there? Mm. Why are they entitled to be there in the first place? We have a statutory instrument that's just been passed by this government. You know, to do something about that, I don't hear anything about doing something about it. Why is Shell able to operate in Russia? Why is BP working with Rosneft? I mean, that is just an abysmal state of affairs where you're allowing... I mean, these are structural companies. Gazprom is structural to the manner in which the Putin regime operates. And it's 51% controlled by the state. The money goes... I mean, the entire state is a gangster state based on rent-seeking. Doesn't, there's no kind of general... Any kind of sort of competitiveness or ingenuity in industry as we would understand it. It takes a huge amount of money from production and from export 
of energy. Now, that production goes towards maintaining the status quo in the elites, which is the method by which Putin maintains his power, the sort of central figure within elite figures in Russia. And it goes towards solving regional and local problems in a politically convenient way. Now, we have the opportunity to do something to damage that system, and we are just not fucking taking it. And there's nothing that was announced this week that would even cause him to blink uh, as he thinks twice about what he's going to do next. Whereas Germany uh, has made... You know, a really strong decision considering that Merkel, one of the criticisms of Merkel when she sat down was that, you know, for years she'd been too indulgent of Putin. Mm -hmm. Olaf Scholz has just pulled the plug on the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, which seems like like it's a genuine sort of sacrifice, you know, an economic sacrifice that Britain is not making. Absolutely right. And I mean, this comes from, look, I have written pieces. I wrote, I, there's a piece which I, I'm not embarrassed by. I mean, you know, you can only do what you can at the time. But I wrote a piece basically lambasting Germany a few weeks ago. They look like the weak man out, mm. you know. They look like the problem here. There's a long tradition, you know, especially in Schultz's party of like, it's better to be talking to Russia and, you know, we've got to be careful here. And, and I should say, in line with that, you do talk to certain Russian experts that say, look, the more you damage the country economically, the more you tie those elite figures to Putin. And you might actually, at least in the short and medium term, strengthen his rule. I sort of think, fine, I don't know what else we can do here. We've got to disincentivize the actions. But certainly that kind of language has had a lot of force in German politics. Um, for them to just step out and go, no, no, hang on a minute, there won't be any certification, mm. is an absolutely massive move. And the one thing that happened this week that will, you know, has the greatest chance of making him think again, or at least of making him think there are consequences to the things that I'm currently doing. Many Keir Starmer wants the financial influence of Russian oligarchs removed from British politics, um, which uh, obviously we removed from one party in particular. Do you think one way or another this is the not the end of Russian money in Britain, but the end of a, of a certain era? Mm, I, I'm not convinced that it is the end of it. You know, there is a bit of a move towards anti-corruption and transparency, which is really good. But uh, as Ian said, you know, Boris Johnson's approach is is very weak and very slow. There is millions of pounds worth of Russian cash spread across British tax havens. Um, I think the organisation Global Witness put that estimate in 2018 at around £34 Obviously, not all of it is dirty money, but it's hard to tell how much it is. And then Russian business people and officials accused of corruption or with links to the Kremlin own a significant number of properties um, worth billions in the UK. And I think the biggest problem here is that this very slow and tepid approach to sanctions and to corruption gives oligarchs and people with a lot of money time to reorganize and move that money around and make it more difficult to track down. And ultimately, if you want to rid the UK of corrupt Russian money, you need a a tough climate of financial transparency, which addresses, you know, 30 or so years of failed policy. And the Treasury and the business department ultimately don't want to do that. So, you know, it would take a a hell of a lot to address this issue properly. I did quite like the idea of kicking the oligarchs' kids out of the prep schools, <laughs> but apparently Westmi- Westminster College would uh, would possibly go bankrupt if that <laughs> happened. There's a very strange alliance of people sympathetic to Putin, or at least repeating his his message, which includes Donald Trump, the Reclaim Party, Alternative for Deutschland, Nigel Farage, and the Stop the War Coalition, uh, which includes uh, several Labour MPs. Why are the far left and the far right on roughly the same page here? It's a difficult question to answer, but I think the the real thing here is that um, the main uniting factor is that every one of those groups has their own kind of political goal or, or political agenda that is 
convenient to put into the narrative of what's happening in Ukraine. So that is obviously EU and NATO. You know, Farage wants to use this as an opportunity to bolster anti-EU sentiment. And the way to do that is to agree with Putin that Ukraine should not be allowed to join NATO. And I think he said something like the, the EU shouldn't have poked the bear, you know, because he's kind of blaming the EU for what's happened there. And then you've got some groups like Stop the War Coalition who point to NATO, although their general point is that the existence of NATO causes global instability. And as Romeo said earlier, the problem is that all of those parties are kind of ignoring the fact that the the NATO demand is is a red herring from Putin. You know, it's a complicated situation and there's a multitude of reasons that he's doing this and not all of them make sense to us. So they've kind of just simplified it for their own political Mm. agenda. Well, Romeo, before you go, I think about maybe some sort of uncertainty about what the rest of the world should be doing here. What is the Ukrainian government calling on other countries to do at the moment? What the Ukrainian government wants in general is support, financial support, military support. Not exactly in terms of boots on the ground, but definitely arms. And that's one area that the UK has so far not let Ukraine down in is deliveries of arms and weapons to Ukraine. And not to shield for the military industrial state or something, but raising the cost to Russia, obviously, raises the risk profile that Putin has to deal with when engaging on what he's doing. That is a good thing for everyone living here in Ukraine, including me personally. So I'm a big supporter of that. On top of that, uh, especially financial support at the moment, uh, the Ukrainian economy has taken a pretty huge hit due to to all the uncertainty. Investors are pulling out left and right. Um, Bond rates are dropping. Lots of other complex financial terms I can just pretend to know about are happening. But the fact of the matter is more money equals less chance that or a greater chance that Ukraine can continue to resist this aggression. And of course, solidarity in general. But Ukraine and the government and its people, we all completely understand that ultimately we're the ones that are going to be confronting Putin and that have been confronting him. And we're the ones that are going to take this brunt and we're not asking anyone to fight our battles for us. This is a a battle over our land and to protect ourselves. We will do what we have to and we don't want anyone to feel like they have to sacrifice themselves for some conflict in Ukraine. No, we will do all the sacrificing ourselves and God willing, we'll win. But in any case, more guns and more money will always help. Is there anything people listening to this can do to help? There are some resources available on Twitter, on the Armed Forces of Ukraine website. If you would like to donate to a bunch of charities that are helping out the military, to the military itself, um, or simply look out for resources that can help the average Ukrainian, then please go ahead and do so. And on top of that, sooner or later, with the way Putin's moving, there are going to be Ukrainian refugees coming into Europe, coming into the UK, coming into the United States. Remember that we're people. Hmm. And please treat us with the same dignity you would any other human being. Thank you so much for joining us, Romeo Kokriatsky. Um, we wish you all the best. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Next this week, we look at events at home. Boris Johnson set out his plan for living with COVID, which is to say ignoring it. This coincided with him becoming the first British Prime Minister ever to be interviewed under caution by the police. If only he could cancel those COVID restrictions retrospectively, all this unpleasantness would be over. Ian, is this the legal end of the pandemic in the UK, if not the medical end of the pandemic? Is that like is there anything left of the regulations now? There's some bits and pieces that stick around until April the 1st. Um, April the 1st is really when pretty much everything falls away. Right. Um, so at the moment, there's advice to stay at home and avoid contact for five days if you're positive. Even the advice kind of seems to drift away in, in April. I think we're going to be keeping the COVID passport, the NHS app, to get in some venues All right. um, until April the 1st. There'll be COVID provisions for increased statutory pay as well for another month. So basically, there's a few bits and bobs that last until April the 1st, but we're in the slide off towards nothing. So after April the 1st, no more having to show your NHS passport, no more masks, like no more nothing. Well, I mean, the difference will be, I suppose, what is imposed by government edict and what places choose to do. Of right? course, so yeah. TfL can still continue to have a requirement right. for masks, for instance, okay. and, and I'm presuming a venue will be well within its legal rights to say we're still going to ask for the NHS app or, or whatever. Um, but pretty much everything else is, is, is on its way out. There's an obvious political motive for doing this, but is that political motive, is it aimed at the public or just the largely libertarian backbenchers that Johnson's job depends on? The latter. Um, so I think you can see the calculation very clearly at this stage, um, which is, you know, you're imagining you're going to have a leadership contest. That's going to come down to a vote, to a vote of no confidence mm. at some point. Let's say it's after the local elections or it might be sooner or, or maybe it won't happen. But that's what he's planning for. Now, it seems to me that it's like a really basic equation. The first part is you take as many as you can of the sort of diehard Brexity, hence Rees Mogg, you know, making those offers, uh, anti-lockdown guys, reactionaries on the backbenches, and you add them to the payroll vote. The mm. payroll vote, we just don't really talk about enough. And I don't think, I think we very rarely recognize just how vast it is. You know, the payroll vote is people that are around cabinet and ministers. It's also uh, parliamentary secretaries. Yeah. Um, and then you've got trade envoys. Now, you put all of those together and you get about 150 MPs. Now, those are guys who can't vote against, right? I mean, you're, you're not dealing with much less than half of your sort wow. of parliamentary vote. I mean, these are big, big numbers. Now, you don't need to add that many more people onto the payroll vote in order to secure yourself through. Now, I mean, maybe, you know, you might see some dropping off, but ultimately that seems to be the tactic. And in this case, I mean, there isn't even a glimmer of a sense that this was done for any kind of scientific reason or on the basis of, I mean, at least before there was a pretense, right? Mm -hmm. We've lost that pretense almost completely now. I mean, this is just done for the backbenches, he makes that clear every time he mentions it, the manner in which he talks about it when he's in the Commons or in PMQs. It is done for them and it is done in order to survive uh, the vote that he clearly thinks is coming. But what's the science? The WHO and BMA are um, very sceptical. Witty and Valance are, are sort of going along with it. Is there a feeling that even though it is, even though the motives are shady, that this is around the time that this stuff would be happening? Or are there lots of people, maybe in other countries, looking at us and going, this is madness, what are you doing? There are, well, let me put it this way. There's definitely some sensible people who think that regardless of the motives for the decision, now is roughly the right kind of time to be opening up, right? So the, their point would be, if not now, when? Mm. 
You know, I mean, we're, we're now fully, you know, we've had as, as much immune, as many immune experiences as we can have, whether it's through the vaccine or through contact. We've seen what happened with, with the last wave of a more moderate uh, variant. So wh- when are we going to do it if we're not going to do it now? Which, incidentally, I think is a pretty good argument as it is. And, and there are, there is a supplementary argument to that, which is that we know that uh, immunity wanes from the vaccine. And we, we also know there's going to be more variants now. It might be not such a bad idea for us actually to be out there boosting our immunity in that way. There is controversy over that argument, but that's an argument that sometimes people make. The thing is, whichever way you fall on that stuff, you don't do it like this. You don't do it like you're in some kind of fucking fairy tale where it's like, well, let's just pretend it never happened. It's like it's like the ending of Dallas. You know, it's just like it's just a dream. It was all just a dream. Just pretend none of that, you know, even took place. No, you do it. You know, I mean, friend of the show, Christina Pegel, did a, an amazing thread about two, three weeks ago, where she just like, listed the kind of policies you can do, which are policies that do not get in the way of your life. You know, one of them is just like, put the money into ventilating public buildings, especially schools. Yeah, yeah. something that can be done. It doesn't get in the way of anyone's life. I think, why would you be... There's talk of getting rid of the sort of random public testing that's done by the ONS. It's just complete madness. Like, complete madness. Like, why would you get rid of data? Why would you get rid of information? Instead, what we could be doing is exporting that model. You could do that really quite cheaply. And if you were trying to show that you really were global Britain and you're really interested in helping other countries, if you want to do the kind of thing that China has done by trying to use uh, vaccines as part of its sort of PR initiative. You could be doing that as British. You could be helping countries Mm. in in that way. Certainly, you could be helping them to create the vaccine themselves uh, and to produce the vaccine. And finally, I would say that you would still want to have a sense of granting people autonomy, you know, of being able to make rational decisions about what's around them. Like you don't do that by taking away lateral flow tests and, and, and charging for them, by taking away sort of PCR tests. You don't do that. You try to equip people to make rational judgments about the level of risk they're prepared to go through. That's the argument that Boris Johnson was using. It's personal responsibility, it's common sense, mm. all of that. But you take away the equipment by which they might actually be able to pursue that. Minnie, were you surprised to see them actually sort of, uh, you know, actively making the financial case for ending free tests? You know, it's just, oh, well... We'll save a lot of money. It's very expensive finding out whether people have this virus or not. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't surprised by it. I think there were conversations, you know, a year and a half ago about whether or not um, testing would remain free. Obviously, the right thing to do is to to have free tests. Like, as as Ian says, how are people supposed to make decisions? How are people supposed to protect themselves, protect friends, protect family, if they don't know whether or not they do have COVID? Like, we, you know... It's not the same as a cold. It isn't the same, however much we'd like to get to the point where it feels like people just have colds. It's it's not the same. And ultimately, you know, this is about public health. I don't think you should have to pay for a lot of things that you currently have to pay for. You know, I'm supportive of free prescriptions and sanitary products and all of that. You know, prevention is better than a cure and free testing is part of that prevention. It allows us to control the spread. It allows us to understand what's happening in the population. By not having free tests, you risk higher outbreaks and new variants going undetected. And and actually, that could keep us in this situation for longer. So it seems quite a, a ridiculous policy to me. And it's been pointed out that removing free LFTs means that relatives of vulnerable people you know, are perhaps less likely to take them before visiting. I know some people who um, have got various sort of vulnerabilities and have been sheltering and they feel um, completely ignored by this. Has there been any, have you seen any mention 
of these people who, who for whom learning to live with COVID is uh, is not so easy as it is for for, for you and me. No, I don't, I don't think there's been any learning whatsoever. And I, I think it's really discriminatory. And most of all, I think it's really scary for those people. And that's the, that's the worst thing about it. You know, how can they have how can they have any confidence that the government is thinking about them? You know, obviously, there are many things that put vulnerable people at risk every single day. But that doesn't mean that we should maintain the status quo and that we should keep those things in place and that, you know, the rest of the population should just go back to normal and everyone else can can be forgotten about. You know, we've gone through a deadly pandemic. We're still in it in a lot of ways. Um, and the government should be thinking about what they've learned about protecting those people during COVID and then making changes to public health policy going forward. You know, there are a lot of things that they can do to protect those populations. And it is important that everyone gets a sense of normality back and not just the people who, you know, relatively fit and healthy and, and confident going out and about, even though COVID's still in the population. You know, I think it's really unfair. I wonder whether there might be cases where it's actually legally discriminatory, where people yeah, could, bring, could, yeah. bring, could bring cases. Um, I imagine so, especially in workplaces and things mm. like that. You know, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure there's a lot of um, disability discrimination going on that we're going to see in in a few months or years' time coming out. And now the infrastructure is being dismantled um, of you know of testing and tracing and so on. Do we have any idea what will happen if there are new variants? I mean, Omicron turned out to be you know, thankfully not half as as dangerous as we thought. I mean, my mum had it was was sort of fine. If my mum had had COVID two years ago, you know, we would have been terrified. So maybe people think, oh well, new variants aren't such a big deal. But we don't know. The whole point about variants is they're varied. We don't know what the next one will be. Will any of this be brought back? Is there a sort of an emergency skeletal infrastructure which can then be kind of built up if we have another more dangerous variant? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't be sure that there is, you know, some kind of system in place for if there is another variant. I, I certainly haven't seen anything. I think this does depend on the variant, as you said. Like, if a new variant pops up, it will depend on how quickly it spreads, how well it evades the immune system or the vaccine, whether it causes more severe disease. And I think if the answers to those questions are bad or negative, at that point, the government should do something. You know, I don't think there's a chance we'll go back to full lockdowns or that or that those will be necessary. But you know, the public has experienced things like masks and testing and isolation. I feel that those could be brought back relatively quickly if there were a, a very dangerous variant circulating. And it's also really important that we would we do stuff like that because the the rest of the world is at risk in varying levels of vaccination across the globe. The problem, I think, is that because a lot of the decisions being made are political at this point, you can't necessarily trust the government to do the right thing at the right time when it's needed. And, and that has been a problem throughout the whole pandemic. As listeners may have noticed. Um, Michael, be honest. Did you think Johnson would be gone by now? Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, I did. Mug that I am. I was on... Um... A panel show very much like this on Radio 5 about two years ago. I don't make a habit of going on these because I'm so out of my depth. It was John Peanut and he asked the panel, you know, what, what will Boris Johnson do with his five years? And I thought, I've got no idea what Boris Johnson's going to do with his five years. And the first thing that sprung to mind was, I'm not sure he'll see out his five years, will he? He is... Uh, 
one of those strange things where whereby he's just kind of consistently failing and succeeding at the same time. He's like not good at anything he does, but he's still in regular employment. Um, so I, I always assumed that some scandal or other would remove him. I was expecting him to buckle under the pressure. And it is odd, isn't it? The, the, the way news is so just incessant. Things that seem big that happened last week are no longer big. It, it feels like Trump again. There'd be some, in, in, I remember there being intense pressure about his, his tax returns. He's got to, he's got to publicize. He's got to do this. Everyone's saying he has to. And then something else would happen that would just push it out of the news and therefore out of the public psyche. So I think he's relying on that. I think he's going to get away with it. Well, the good news is, in the longer term, that his ratings are, are still in the toilet. Um, mm. And that this kind of certainly voters are not particularly excited about the end of um, restrictions. Do you think... I mean, when I think back to the, say, you know, two years ago, and I definitely thought there would be a kind of like a, a VE day with, you know, kissing in the streets and, oh, the night we'll have in the pub when on the day that it's over and COVID signs the surrender treaty. Um, do you think it's now just been dragging on too long? We've had so many sort of phases of going forward, two steps forward and one step back, that, that there is no great sense of release that would translate into a kind of you know, political benefit for him, that we, we we don't have this like, hooray! Yes. I think he probably expected some sort of <laughs> season finale. But I think you're right. I think people are totally worn down by it, crucially, not only by COVID, but by the government. Uh, these things have been running parallel. Because mm. uh, I, I don't know who it was who said this on Twitter, but it, 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 they li it literally is the worst set of people you could have in charge for this situation. Every step of the way, they were doing it wrong. I, I don't wish to get into the whole Matt Hancock, you know, disaster, <laughs> which was his career. But things like that, this, this, this running narrative of, of when will they get this right? There's fatigue there. And this could be the last, like it's meant to be the last Downing Street COVID press conference. Um, is that disappointing news for you professionally? Yeah. <laughs> A funny story about that. I did um, comedians giving lectures. Uh, Sarah Pascoe brought me on and said, um, your career pretty much took off during the pandemic. Were you sad when they found a vaccine? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I said, yes, I used to break into laboratories and, you know, knock test tubes over and things like that. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, it's interesting that I am split down the middle in terms of wanting this to be over, <laughs> but also knowing that as long as they're in charge, there will be material. And it doesn't really need to be a, a daily press briefing. It, uh, it very often it is just a car crash interview. There are uh, interviewers now who do seem to kind of push it a little and make the politicians squirm. That's perfect for me. I mean, I've always said this. I just join the dots. That's all I do. Pretty Patel is like my comedy partner, who doesn't want to who doesn't want to take the responsibility. You know, it's just basically handed me a, a comedy sketch 
about 70% of it has been written and doesn't want to take any of the credit for it. Well, Nadine, <laughs> well, what a treat Nadine Doris's uh, kind of energy is. Yeah, I thought that um, I thought I wouldn't be able to do anything with her because she's such a caricature. I mean, that, that, that does go back to how this all began. How do you parody something that's, that's so ridiculous anyway? How, when Spitting Image were doing their puppets again, how, what were they doing when they were doing Trump and Boris Johnson? They are puppets. They are spitting. They are living Spitting Image puppets. What are you? What could you do? What could you do? What kind of sketch could you do that would make them seem even more absurd? You can't. And Nadine Doris is like that. To be quite frank with you, I thought, well, I haven't done it for a while, so I'll give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they. She sucked you back in. Comedians live for the for the laughs and the response because it keeps them warm at night, and um, and I was missing that, and I thought, <laughs> oh well, I'll do it because um, because it was an extraordinary um, interview she gave in this weird loft that with a bookcase with no books in it, and of course it, it's well worth uh, dismantling that because a politician going on and deciding not to answer any of the questions asked is is just seen as petulant and and um and deeply annoying so i thought yes i'll tear into that you know the cliche uh, when people are described as swivel-eyed you know when you want to buy the unhinged and i'd never really seen someone be swivel-eyed physically <laughs> and then i saw that and i was like oh right yeah yeah that's that's what's going on it's uh, yeah it's a it's a dissonant energy, I would say. I've, I've never seen I've never seen anybody actually move like a spitting image puppet either. It was, uh, <laughs> it's like you expected her to kind of side off like that and do that, <laughs> which is which I understand is not prob- probably not very good for the podcast. Sorry. <laughs> he was doing some sidling lessons. I was doing sidling, you know, when a. Puppet master moves their puppets. He's, he's still doing it now. Still doing it now. <laughs> okay, okay. Don't, know, don't know why I did it again. <laughs> There'll be more visual humour later in the show. Yeah. It's near the end of the show, so it's time to take a look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Uh, Minnie, what do you have? Yeah, so I'm going to talk about um, a story that JCWI has actually been working on this week, and it was covered in The Guardian. So we're supporting a group of asylum seekers who are being housed in hotels managed by Clear Springs, who are contracted by the Home Office. Those asylum seekers received eviction notices from Clear Springs, and we've actually seen just a huge number of asylum seekers getting eviction threats. So these are people who are supposed to be in hotels, and it's classed as kind of short-term housing. Asylum Matters, who's another organisation, has received some information that that these eviction threats are increasing because some of the owners of those hotels want to reopen them to tourists in the summer. So there's a bit of a high risk that a lot of asylum seekers will be left homeless over the coming months because the Home Office has absolutely no thoughts about long-term housing, despite an incredible backlog, and also because they basically are insistent that everyone will be deported at some point, so they don't really care. So I just wanted to draw a bit of attention to that story because it's um, something that we're seeing quite regularly now. Sure. Thanks, Minnie. Uh, Ian? Uh, More immigration doom, I'm afraid. I don't know if this counts as a story. Jacob Cooper, um, he's an excellent uh, journalist on 
Twitter, came into Luton Airport the other day. And as he described it, just as, as you're waiting for the immigration checks, which take up to an hour there. Well, at the time that he was there, I presume they're gone for longer a lot of the time. Um, have a, a booming speaker make a tremendous amount of noise just saying only those eligible will be able to enter and announcing these tougher immigration checks. In that particular airport, they used to have the nice touristy pictures, you know, of welcome to London and here's a beef eater and, you know, you can see the Queen's jewels or whatever the, whatever the fuck else people want to go see. Now it's just replaced by this utterly dystopian I was about to say Orwellian, but then I just looked to you and I just think I don't I don't want to get told off by Dorothy. You're really shaking <laughs> shaking good. your head. I mean you've had a tough week on the whole world thing. I'm not gonna try and do any more of it. Um like, <laughs> just brutal, grey, bossy horror show that we've turned our airports into. And I, I noticed this more and more myself when I'm coming back to the UK. I think you mm. see it to a lesser extent, but you do see it in Gatwick and you do see it in Heathrow of just us stripping away anything that could possibly look welcoming in exchange for this. And you sort of think who exactly is this shit fucking for? You know, yeah. I mean, like, is it is it meant to? Presumably, it's not to illegal immigrants, right? It's not for someone that's going to sort of smuggle things. Just going to, oh no, I couldn't possibly do it now. I mean, you know, there, there's, there's, there's a sign. There's yeah. a sign. They're being very stern, and I might have to wait here for over an hour. So I better just go. I will go back, back to my war zone. <laughs> Exactly. So what is it? Is it for us? Is it is it supposed to be for British citizens to show that the government's... Because it doesn't give that impression. It just makes the whole country look so morally inadequate and stagnant and grey and fucked. And it's a tendency that we could very well do without. Um, Michael? Well, I, I was actually struggling with this. I didn't... I haven't got my finger on the pulse like you have. But I did notice that um, Jack Smithers died. And he was the star of Love Thy Neighbour. I'm a comedy nerd. I'm a self-confessed comedy nerd. But I'm also really into, because of YouTube, I'm just really into TV, film, attitudes of the, 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 you know, from 50s onwards. And I just thought it was really interesting to kind of revisit that period in history when Love Thy Neighbour was the most popular sitcom of all time. Has it dated badly? Uh, it dated badly <laughs> the moment it was broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's um absolutely extraordinary it, it is unwatchable because there's this feeling that it was like in sickness and in health or, or till death us do part where there was where they were actually looking at a changing britain and and attitudes towards it and there was this idea that if you did put a bigot in the middle of a sitcom and much more intelligent people were bouncing off him that you'd get some sort of constructive uh, response from it but with Love Thy Neighbour, it was literally pitting a white man against a black man. And the jokes were name-calling. They were just stereotypes. They were, it was it, because they hated each other. The weird thing I forgot about it was that the, the Jack Smethurst played Eddie Booth, who was white, Labour-voting, union-supporting factory worker. Mm. And Bill Reynolds was a conservative-voting black man. They were conflicted over their politics as well even though they were <laughs> not quite how you would expect them to be i was going to say check out an episode but don't just uh take my word <laughs> so when he it. when he died when jet smithers died then did they because i didn't hear you know th this on the news or whatever yeah did they have like presumably they didn't have any clips 
<laughs> they were just like <laughs> he was in the show, but it was appallingly racist. So yeah, it it feels like it has his deaths has kind of slipped under the radar a bit. It's almost impossible to take a clip uh, and, mm, and listen mm. to it because it's not addressing any issue. They felt the weird thing is that the writers felt that they were addressing issues because the wives of these neighbors were friends and they just got on, and more, most of the time they would just stand just offset with their with their arms folded going our husbands eh but it was deeply offensive and just missed the target but what mustn't be forgotten is that this was huge so i think it ran for like three series or something it had a film the british public loved it they loved these, watching these two men wild. go at it and that is i i think in many ways is kind of reflective of um the way attitudes are re- regressing now. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Yikes. Um, I just want to quickly recommend a new BBC podcast presented by Mariana Spring, uh, the disinformation and social media uh, correspondent at the BBC. Death by Conspiracy, it is about the death of a conspiracy theorist from COVID um, in Shrewsbury, and it sort of digs into the uh, conspiracist underworld of Shrewsbury. Uh, which is kind of fascinating. Uh, one of the main the people running the big Facebook group there uh, turns out to be uh, a juggler and unicyclist, um, which is not is a very British kind of thing. <laughs> and at certain points, it plays out sort of like an episode of the Steve Coogan sitcom Saxondale, um, <laughs> where you just think, oh, it's the person, it's the oh, it's the woman that works in the crystal shop, and it's the guy who's really into prog rock. And it's sort of, she approaches it with a great deal of, of empathy and very good storytelling. And you're learning about the sort of tragedy of this guy that just got sort of sucked into sort of beliefs and didn't believe COVID was real and then died of COVID. But around that, you just have this kind of fascinating insight into a kind of English bazaar. Mm. And that's the show. Thank you to Ian. Thank you very much. Minnie. Thank you. And our guest, Michael Spicer. My pleasure. Thank you. Stay tuned for a preview of our extra bit exclusively for Patreons. You'll hear it after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers. Hello, and many thanks from me to Adam Biles, Sarah Lyons, Stephen Harris, James Carrier, Dave King, Claire Wellsbury Nye, Jamie Seussmith and Ben Campbell. Big hello from me to Paul Gregory, Tamsin Burland, Mark, Dalja Evans, Johnny, Simon Thomas, Kalman Kernbesh, and Jonathan Teds. And thanks for me to James Littlejohn, Ruth Chadwick, Alex W, Noel McAvoy, Tarek Barrett, Charis Hill, Andy Mack, and Peter Jew. See you next time. Oh God, what now? was presented by Dorian Linsky with Minnie Rahman and Ian Dunt. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. An audio production was by Jade Bailey and me, Alex Reese. This podcast's Man in the Room Next Door. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Now for this week's extra bit. As Storm Eunice descended last Friday, a YouTube channel also swept the nation. Figuratively. <laughs> Hundreds of thousands of people tuned into Big Jet TV as plane spotter Jerry Dyer went viral with his commentary on planes landing at Heathrow. This 
gave viewers a welcome opportunity to bunk off from working from home. Why do we love these collective distractions and how do we steal time back from the man? Uh, firstly, has anyone actually been watching Big Jet TV? Oh, yeah, I watched the shit out of it. <laughs> I mean, I watched oh. 10 minutes of it and then was bored. T how could you stop watching after 10 minutes? It was, I couldn't, I could barely go <laughs> and make more coffee. I mean, I would have liked to watch more of it. It was, it's very wholesome, isn't it? It's very just like, you know, nice. <laughs> A nice guy saying things to planes. Planes can't reply to him. <laughs> but there's only so much of it you can watch. I think. It would have been. Good. It if would've the been planes better. did reply, <laughs> yeah, that would have been. That would have sorted right out. That would have been a trick. Well, I wonder whether that's the thing. Is it's these sort of, sort of lovable nerds doing doing their thing, and that this was sort of the benign, the sort of early promise of social media, wasn't it? Just like cool people you don't know doing fun stuff. Mm. That's lovely. That part was lovely, but also it was coupled with this whole "what if that plane's going to fucking crash?" <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, like they were wobbling all over the place. They were. They, I mean, some of them were basically landing sideways. And at the beginning, I kind of couldn't handle his attitude, right? Because he was he was just joking around and he was laughing all the way through. I mean, because basically that that guy was having the most exciting day of his life. I think he was getting his nerdery satisfied mm. by the planes. And then also he was getting more attention than presumably he'd ever received before. <laughs> so he was he was really in a in a very heightened state. And I was quite uncomfortable with the laughing until I was sort of told by a bunch of people who were like, look, if there was any chance of anything happening to these planes, th they wouldn't have been up in the air in the first place. It's just like, you know, there, there is a tried system here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You go for three times. If you don't, you know, if, you, if you're not going to go for it on the third time, you, you go away. They do know what they're doing. And once you could relax on that part, but even then there was still a bit of you that's like, that's looking pretty dodgy to, to me. And I would have also vommed over the whole of that <laughs> airplane if I'd been anywhere near it. And that was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast. If you like a little bit more, oh God, what now every week, I, I guarantee you will want this one. Um, without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our new weekly mini cast, Oh God, What Else, out every Monday morning, exclusive to backers. Your support really does help us keep going. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.